0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and commodities Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team.
1: The meeting market is a tale of two cities in 2023. It's struggling with sagging new issuance, particularly in taxables. But on the other hand, it has rewarded holders with decent risk-adjusted returns so far. With much uncertainty now out of the way regarding the Fed's inflation battle, the stage seemingly set for munis in the coming year to continually look better versus other types of fixed income. And while fund flows remain a concern, the asset class's ability to provide tax-exempt income exceeding inflation remains a key feature, especially if recessionary pressures increase. Here, joining myself and Karen Altamirano on the June edition of Masters of the Universe is Nisha Patel from Parametric. For those of you unfamiliar, Nisha began her career in the investment management industry as a portfolio manager with MD SaaS in 2006. She joined the firm in 2009, originally as an employee of Parametric's former parent company, Eaton Vance. And at Parametric, she's now responsible for buy and sell decisions, portfolio construction, risk management for Parametric's Tax Advantage Bond Strategies Group, and joining us on the podcast, obviously. So with that, Nisha, welcome. Happy to have you. Very excited for the conversation today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So look, um, you know, the biggest thing, obviously, with it being a Fed day is, you know, interest rates, right? And how that's obviously impacted our market. So let's just start with like a very, very broad-based macro view. You know, where do you think we are in the battle of inflation right now?
2: Yeah, so I, I think we're we're definitely uh close to, let's say, winning in this battle, uh, and at least in bringing inflation down, right? Recent numbers have pointed to the fact that we're seeing some easing there, which I think could rightfully warrant for the Fed to, and I won't say exactly pause, because that may may, uh, kind of translate into meaning they've stopped, but at least skip uh, raising uh, rates today uh, and possibly waiting to see where data comes in. But look, it's been a historical tightening Period. Right. And and I think finally we're seeing the impact of it on inflation, but no doubt it is still high. So the Fed is going to be very much focused on making sure the trend of that inflation is coming down at a fast enough pace, right, that that they want it um, to stand. Because the last thing we would want to see and obviously that they want to see is it kind of hangs in there still too high uh, yeah. and that they have to go through another cycle of rate hikes. Let's hope not.
1: I mean, it seems like a mixed bag, right? When you look at the CPI data and you sort of, you know, pull the pieces apart, you know, obviously like, you know, you're seeing some relief in the supermarket, but then you go out to dinner and everything's a million times more expensive than last year. So, you know, it certainly seems like they have a bit of a ways to go in some regards.
2: Exactly. And I think the recent figure uh, on used car sales as well, right, that's kind of jumped up a little bit. It wasn't the pandemic uh, kind of type of jump that we've seen, but you're still yeah. seeing pieces of inflation continuing to stay relatively high. You look at the housing market, right? I mean, it's still relatively strong given where rates are. So these are all things that, again, kind of keep this layer of uncertainty in today's market that, you know, you're going to have, I think, pundits on both sides being like, no, no, they should stop and they should wait to see what happens. They've made a lot of progress. But Mm -hmm. I think you can still make a very strong argument that, look, we're not seeing enough So today's, you know, if they don't raise rates today, which I think is highly likely, in my view, it's simply going to be just kind of skipping this meeting. Uh, But that doesn't mean that rate hikes are completely off the table and that they're done. But no doubt, we're close to the end.
1: Well, that's a relief. I mean, hopefully I can refinance my mortgage again sometime (laughs) in this century. But I mean, that brings up the broader question of, you know, sort of like how how we get to the other side of this and, and what sort of you know, landing, soft or hard, we actually end up with. I mean, Karen, we were talking about this earlier, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, there's a follow-up question to sticking with the topic of inflation is what sort of landing do you think we will have and what concerns should many investors have if the economy enters a recession?
2: Yeah, so I I think we we still have a chance for a soft landing, right? And I say that because if you take a look at the labor market and obviously employment numbers and look at the May, employment figure kind of was just absolutely resilient, uh, which kind of repriced the entire market, right? And kind of the expectation of what the Fed was going to do. Basically, no more rate cuts expected in the market for this year, which has been a huge transition. Um, So I think with the employment market, as strong as it is, I still think that there's room for soft landing, right? If, If enough work has been done, and they don't have to go through another kind of phase of rate hikes. Then, and we're seeing the trajectory of inflation come down. I think a soft landing is is quite possible. Now, if we're you know we're still entering a former recession. To your point, from the municipal bond side, I think two things. You look at it from a credit fundamental standpoint, and then you look at it from an allocation and opportunity standpoint. So, from a credit fundamental standpoint, and as you're well aware, uh, no doubt, I mean, a recession means you know, lower taxes possibly, right, income taxes, sales taxes, Uh, and we've seen this over and over again, Uh, tighter budgets, uh, expenses having to be cut uh, to counteract those revenues. But we also know that there's been just an unprecedented amount of fiscal stimulus that's gone out to these municipalities. So, you know, when you take a look at reserve levels, and it's exactly what's meant for, right, during during the recessions to be used. Generally speaking, reserve levels about three times higher uh, going into, let's say, this next recession than where where states were in 2008, and two times higher than going to the pandemic. So again, I think for municipal credit, it'll be a soft landing there too. No doubt, there's going to be pockets that will feel a little bit more pain, but I think generally speaking, you can call it a soft landing.
1: Well, talk to us about those pain pockets as you just Mentioned, you know, where do you see the biggest areas of concern for for your portfolios and from your perspective uh, in the muni market? Like I know what Karen and I think about the market, but you know, we're not out there, you know, buying bonds and you know managing portfolios, so it's a little different.
2: Yes. So I'll put into context that in you know we primarily manage uh, subly managed accounts, and we're in the investment grade space. So kind of just the context I'm giving that context yeah. as I speak to some of these credits. Uh, I would say. You know, our credit analyst team has been looking at the sectors of healthcare uh, um, and higher education. I, I don't want to say with a little bit more scrutiny, right? But those are two pockets uh, of the municipal bond market that we've been looking at a lot closer, let's just say. And inflation over the past few years no doubt has eaten and eroded kind of profit margins of some of these healthcare systems. And so that's something that we're taking into account. And, you know, the the feasibility of some of these healthcare systems that can still exist um, when you have major competitors that are providing cheaper services, bigger services. Uh, And we've seen the gobbling up of this, right, over the past decade, you know, kind of big ones coming in, taking over the smaller ones. Um, But that continues to be a space that we are going to be, I would say, let's just say, a a, a lot more cautious about. Higher education is an interesting one because. I think the pandemic, um, and we still have yet to see, I think the full ramifications of this, but it's something that we're following the trends of Um, during the pandemic. You kind of just have a shift that's taken place um, in public education, right? I mean, with the availability of, of online um, college degrees um, with the availability of other options, I I think that's a sector that is going to see continuous change And I think that's just underappreciated. So look, again, hard for me to translate exactly now, but that's a sector that we wanna follow closely just in terms of the trends um, that we're seeing, right? In smaller private colleges, um, even public ed colleges, public education colleges.
0: Um, And then
2: lastly, I'll say, you know, look, the water, uh, and this maybe encompasses maybe a bigger uh, topic of, of climate risk and, you know, talking about ESG investing without even talking about ESG investing.
1: Well, don't jump ahead just yet. That's yes, two questions yeah
2: <laughs> Yes, but water districts, right? I mean, just yeah. in general, when you go look at some of these water districts, especially um, in California and certain parts of the country, what areas are they servicing? Um, how much cash are they burning through? The volatility in the revenue stream, the longer term longevity of these systems um, based upon the dress that we've been seeing continuously yeah that's all things you have to take into account, whether or not you're focusing on ESG investing or not.
1: Any concerns about public transit at all? I feel like that was sort of the the one sort of, you know, COVID shakeout sector you haven't mentioned.
2: Yes. Um, and, and thanks for bringing that up. I know sometimes it's like, it it seems like the MTA story has been, I don't want to say played out, but it's one that we've all talked about a lot. Yeah. Um. Yes. Look, I think transit, uh, when you look at major cities, no doubt the number one question that we always get a lot is even being in New York City, um, less people still coming back to work. What does this mean for commercial real estate? What does this mean for tax collections? Uh, less people taking transit into the city, right? Again, we've seen a massive shift as people are working from home. Yeah. So transit, yes, no doubt we are being, I would say, a lot more cautious about um, and we use the philosophy less about, look, do we think the MTA is going to default? Yeah. No, no. ultimately no, right? I mean, but our philosophy is also avoiding downgrades, right? Mm-hmm. This is the sleep of of a client's, let's call it sleep safe money, as much as I can kind of say that on air. Um, so every downgrade results in meaningful kind of price, right, impact and deterioration. So transit, yes, no doubt, um, MTA, obviously, but across the country, it's going to be a sector that that we have been looking at, but it's certainly one that we're going to be looking at for a long time now.
1: I do want to note that we're all in the office today, so we're doing our part to <laughs> yes, help Yes, exactly, there you go. Yeah.
2: Yes,
0: I took Metro North in today, that's right. There you go. Uh, so I want to go back to your comment earlier about tax revenues moderating. We're all we're already seeing that across various different states, um, but you also mentioned that, you know, that it's really just going to be affecting certain pockets. Um, do you think, this will cause an increase at all in defaults and downgrades? And should we, we be relying on rating agencies which have been slow to react in the past?
2: No, I, I think it's, it's a very good question. And, and I don't think, again, with the context of what we believe will be a soft landing, I think the default rate will stay, uh, I don't want to say stagnant. Again, you, you can expect a slight uptick but it is going to be very marginal. I don't think you're going to see anywhere near the amount of defaults that you saw during the 2008 or post 2008 era, um, or even possibly during, let's just say uh, the pandemic era. Although there are you know, very select few uh, kind of defaults that we saw there. So yeah. I don't think we're, we're going to see a big uptick in default rates in terms of you're right. You know, I think rating agencies and and this is what we constantly tell our clients. And I think it's interesting with the client psyche, um, when the economy is good, booming, uh, tax revenues are flowing. It's not to say clients don't care about credit, but it's less of a upfront topic. And then soon as the narrative changes, hey, the economy is slowing down. We're going to enter a recession. It's like, oh, wait. Right. Is is credit okay? Just want to make sure credit's okay. but our story has been look, Rating agencies, yes, have typically been behind, right? And they've been significantly behind when it comes to
1: you don't say
2: things <laughs> like unfunded pension liabilities, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So, right? And who knows? The upgrades are probably hmm. also a little bit delayed. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, we're already way past this cycle, and now you're finally, you know, upgrading. And and look, upgrades have outpaced downgrades. I think it was three to one in 2022, um, which is great, but Now, I think the reverse, as we see a slowdown, they're just going to be slower to then actually make that change to the downgrade. So um, this is where credit due diligence, having an in-house team do that work, I think is going to be very important. And again, to your point and what I made earlier, it's not necessarily about avoiding defaults. That's obviously our job and our responsibility as a manager, but it's also avoiding that downgrade, uh, which can have a negative price impact.
1: And or spread widening. Exactly. Yes. Um. You know, to your point about the upgrades, I feel like the rating agencies, they came out like like a hot barrel Gatling gun over the last two years. I mean, I, I, it was like the, the headiest pace that I've ever seen upgrades come in. And yes. most of it was on the presses that they had all the stimulus money. Yes. And so I'm just sort of scratching my head because like, well, that's over and done with. And now you have a lot of warnings coming out about budget deficits. Yes. But you don't see a lot of commentary coming out from them on any of it what's especially sort of puzzling to me is you have all this negative news coming out of San Francisco, you know, just sort of regarding like how the city is faring regards to commercial real estate. You have hotels and malls just basically like yeah. running for the hills and there's zero commentary. So I guess my question for you is, do you actually think San Francisco is still a triple A credit in any way, shape or form? And, you know, do you think that's sort of the canary in the coal mine as far as troubles other major cities might have going forward?
2: Yes. So, uh, internally and just our viewpoint is that we don't view san francisco to be as highly rated as rating agencies right this is a perfect example of to your point and look i i'm also going to bring in and no knock against illinois and new jersey but these are two major states that were the lowest rated states that have seen significant upgrades right upgrade after upgrade a rated Mm -hmm. now states have they solved the bigger issue of the unfunded pension liabilities and the gap in their funding I just ratio my notes, the yes <laughs> yes exactly yes they have all these funds they have all these liquidities you know and these states are finally paying in what they're supposed to to keep the ratio the same but they're they're not necessarily making it significantly better and look i, I think maybe from a rating agency standpoint they have a certain viewpoint for the next let's say 12 months maybe 18 months obviously there's a shorter term outlook Longer term outlook, Uh, and no doubt, when you look at New Jersey, Illinois, San Francisco, you can make very positive points. But we're in the mindset, and I think exactly with what you're insinuating with San Francisco, we take a longer term view. Have they solved these structural issues? They have not. Right now, again, I'm not saying that they're going to default, but there's still a lot of rating volatility that I think is going to come about as a result of that. And and same with San Francisco. So. It's hard. It's hard to, you know, take qualitative data sometimes. And, and you take a look at San Francisco and even New York City, my uh, migration numbers, right, people living, leaving the city. Yeah. And we know they're all going to Texas and Florida and the no tax states and living in the sunny life of those states. Um, but what, what does that mean at the end of the day? And maybe we don't have enough data, um, but we do take a longer term view when it comes to any of these issuers to say, How can can we take that qualitative aspect of it um, and and try to, let's say, appropriately notch these issuers accordingly, lower or higher, typically lower, um, but take that data into account? So I guess going back to your main question, San Francisco, in our view, is is not a AAA rated credit. Now, that's not to say it's not a credit we wouldn't buy, but we would certainly not be paying a AAA type of price for it. We'd want to see more spread because we do think that there's more credit risk there.
1: I like that answer. That's a very honest answer. I wish the rating agencies would get on board with that sort of methodology.
0: Yes. Um, Munis entered 2023 better positions, but this year hasn't been an easy one. We've had to navigate volatility in U.S. Treasury rates, banking concerns, contentious debt ceiling negotiations. Yeah. May is typically a strong month for munis, but closed out the month with negative returns. Um, but we do know that meetings is still up for this year, I think somewhere around 1.7%. Now that we've entered the summer reinvestment period, um, we'd love to know what your short-term outlook is for, for Moody's. Yeah, so I, I think we've been uh, taking
2: this sell-off in May and really pounding the table in terms of an opportunity when we speak to our clients, right? So I think for a while there, clients thought they maybe missed the boat. Yields have come down. Hey, Mm -hmm. did I miss out on on this? Um, And I would say two things, right? In May, you've had the SVB list that's put a lot of pressure in the market. So we've had yield concessions and and we've seen yields go up 30 to 50 basis points. So to your point, a negative return. Um, And then I think there's been also just a stronger narrative to increasing fixed income allocation in general, right? That the Fed is close to being done. That clients are looking to actively balance out their portfolios, take off some of the risk, uh, and lock in higher yields, especially if you're in that higher tax bracket. So I think there, right now, and let's just, we're seeing short term an incredible opportunity to to put cash to work. And I think to your point, as you're getting to, is this reinvestment season that is coming up that we're in right until the end of August, we see a lot of reinvestment money, Uh, let's just say reinvestment taking place. Um, and I think this year, you can expect a lot of it to come back into the market just given where yields are, right? Given where attractive taxable equivalent yields are, and given this narrative that clients are looking for mer- more fixed income. So I, I know that street estimates have varied, but I think numbers like net negative supply of 30 to 50 billion over this time frame is to be expected. That's only going to be a supportive market, right? This is taking kind of the rates side out of things, hoping, you know, kind of nothing else kind of happens and you don't see a massive shift to the upside in terms of treasury rates. Um, But this is the window that we think is just a really opportunistic window, not only short term, but even a little bit beyond that.
1: You know, obviously, like a lot of investors focus on the short end of the curve uh, just because they're scared of duration Um, and you can't blame them, right? A lot of people got their faces ripped off in the last year because they took on too much duration. But be that as it may, you know, where are you seeing opportunities right now on the curve? Um, you know, obviously it's easy to look at ratios, but I mean, there's more to it than that.
2: Yeah, so I, I would say, and, and you're exactly right. I, a lot of the flows that we've been getting, and again, the narrative has changed so much in the past four to eight weeks, is that we were okay taking duration, right? Clients are like, you know, we're okay extending duration, we're okay going out longer maturity-wise uh, to lock in yields. So as you're aware, um uh, Muni Curve uh is, is pretty deeply inverted. It's it's a little bit of a uncharted territory for us all because we've we've never been here for this long. Um it's about half the inversion in the two to ten and the treasury side, but we just haven't ever been here. But that belly of the curve um is is unattractive, right? You want to be able to avoid that. So what we've been saying is look, if you want to keep it liquid, you want to stay short, sure. Absolute yields are attractive. Ratios are rich, but you can get some value there. If you're okay taking on duration, extend out to that right 12 to 20-year part of the curve. I mean, that's really where you're maximizing the steepness. And, and what we kind of frame it as is you take the 30-year yield curve. How much are you picking up in each incremental part, right? So in 10 years, you're getting about 75% of the yield by going up 15% of 15 years. Yeah. You're getting ninety percent of the yield. So the long part of the curve in our view is is cheap. It's very attractive. And when you take a look at taxable equivalent yields that are, you know, depending upon the state, six and a half to seven and a half percent, it's equity type returns. Yeah. For a high quality asset class that is very hard to ignore.
1: Yeah. I mean look, I mean, we put out a report, I want to say like two or three weeks ago that looked at you know, long-end meetings on a tax-adjusted basis compared to corporates. And you're picking up, like, 170 basis points, which is pretty significant. But not only that, if you think the curve is going to normalize, which it exactly. should at some yeah. point, you're yeah. also picking up that, you know, asset appreciation pop as you, the long end comes down and the front end normalizes. So, yeah. And, I mean,
2: Yeah, and to that point, maybe the last thing that I'll say is we have have been also – saying, look, in the previous tightening cycles, that's exactly what happens, that curve normalizes. And putting a little bit of urgency around it too, right? If we're close to this last rate hike, what's happened in previous cycles from the last rate hike to let's say the first rate cut, your 10-year treasury yields come down about 100 basis points on average going back to the 80s. And your two-year has come down about 150 basis points. So what does that mean for muni returns you know, munis, broadly speaking, have averaged a positive return of about six to seven percent in each of those time frames. Yeah. So that's also kind of that that exactly right. Like as that yield curve normalizes, the asymmetric upside is significantly higher and very valuable versus let's assume rates go up a little bit higher. Yeah. Your downside is pretty mitigated with how much of a yield cushion
0: you have today.
1: So you mentioned the S V B list, and it's just like a good segue to ask you just what your thoughts are on a lot of the structure that's coming out, right? Obviously, it's a lot of you know low Longer coupon, coupon. Yeah. long duration type structure that you know a lot of people got burned on, um, to say it frankly, um, and and there's not a lot of natural buyers. But I think we're probably close to the point where you know, the potential upside on those buys is probably hard to ignore. Um, especially in sort of income-seeking strategies, right? I mean, just the potential for you know, total return appreciation because there's such steep discounts. You know, what are your thoughts on that?
2: That that's exactly right. So I mean, we've seen right about half the list out by now. I think it's like three and a half billion out of the six and a half. Yeah. Um, just in terms of the market, and what's been incredible, and obviously what's to be expected, is when you have this lower coupon structure, this not ideal structure there's been a significant yield concession that's had to be made for them. So look, as active managers all day long, if we're getting spread and yields that are, that's going to compensate us for, let's say that risk, why would you not buy that structure? Right? I mean, now that structure might be fit for maybe larger institutional type accounts, uh, might be structured for maybe actively managed strategies where you can then turn it around and sell out of it. Um, But we certainly have been taking advantage of it. Um, You know, Again, it's not a structure that we're going to put in a lot of our portfolios, but there have been yield levels that we've won some of these bonds. um, And these are some of the best buys that we have made uh, year to date, hands down, um, just in terms of what we're seeing. And and that's kind of right. These bonds have to be sold. They have to clear the list. They have to sell. um, And that's just a really fun market sometimes, you know, to to take advantage of. So too bad they're not fours and fives.
1: Yeah. But, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a good transition to, I think, Karen's next question. Which
0: yeah. We want to talk a little bit about ladders. So, uh, I think you're pretty familiar that, that some of your peers look down upon ladders. What makes your ladder strategies different?
1: I guess also, you, maybe you can explain to people who aren't in the know, why why does everyone hate on ladders?
0: Yes.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah. Why does everyone hate on ladders? They do. So, yes. Look, um, and and i'll just say that uh, i th- i think the hate if you will or or maybe the the knock against ladders comes upon yeah. the fact that it, it seems too passive it seems too static um you know you kind of pigeonhole clients into one range and nothing else is is done there's no active management of of any sort in a ladder portfolio so for example you know we just talked about the inversion of the curve um you know, how are you avoiding the belly of the curve if you have a set ladder? So and, and, and look, I, I get that. And, I, and I'll just also say that while we have about 30 billion dollars in ladders, we also have about 25 billion dollars in actively managed strategies. Right. I mean, the origination of our fixed income group actually started with active strategies. And then we launched ladders in 2011 because we realized no matter how good your performance can be in actively managed strategies. Clients that want transparency, that want a rules-based approach, that want to know exactly what's going to happen in their portfolios, and that have always been used to that ladder type investing, still want ladders, right? I mean, you can't fight what clients want. And so we constructed ladders, but the benefits and and where I think we've won is, is two aspects, customization offering just a vast amount of customization for any type of overlay a client would want. So, you know, Eric, you say, here are my income needs. I live in this state. Uh, I don't want this. I want that. Um, Sure. you know, we will build that for you. And so, you know, we have about 35,000 portfolios across ladders that in theory could all be structured differently. And then the second thing we'd say is this is not a passive portfolio, right? There's so many components that keep this active the more obvious one is credit research and oversight but the second one is implementing and opting into ongoing tax loss harvesting right i mean that's like that's in the parametric dna and, and as you look up parametric and what we do you know that's something that we provide in our equity solutions that tax efficiency the tax management that's something that we're doing in our fixed income portfolios so i would say these are not passive portfolios right these are going to be very customized, tax efficient, active portfolios to where you are able to overlay this and ultimately provide a client uh, a really personalized and customized solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. I think when we launched Ladders, we were also taken aback at how successful Ladders was, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, we were active managers and, and we launched it because, you know, as we were working with advisors and, you know, they're like, look, this is how we built our business, you know, going from unmanaged to managed, leveraging professional managers, but we want you to keep this like ladders. And we're like, really, you know, you don't want active management, yield curve positioning. They're like, no, my, my clients like to take exposure to a certain part of the curve. This is a sleeve that they right? This is how we take exposure to it. Um, but we want your credit oversight. We want your ongoing tax harvesting. And so that's, you know, again, Give the people what they want, right? And, and and that we just had success in differentiating it in all these different ways. Um and uh it's been it's been pretty incredible.
1: So you know, one of the things that you know I've heard over the years as far as like the knock against ladders or you know, even SMEs to some degree, right? Um, more broadly is that they're sort of captive buyers. doesn't matter where ratios are, if they get in money, they have to build like a zero to five or zero to ten strategy they're They're buying no matter what, and to some extent we've seen that as far as you know let's say the first three years of the curve, just how rich meetings got because of that. I mean, how are you guys navigating around that from a relative value standpoint or are there is there any sort of like you know additional oversight from tax management standpoint that is helping portfolios you know flip in relative value opportunities?
2: yeah, so I would say maybe a few things here um when it comes to exposure to certain parts of the curve, and, and this is kind of, you know, I think scaling the client servicing aspect, working with our partners. If a client has an exposure to a certain part of the curve, we try to have a very proactive conversation to say, look, in a cross ladder because of the customization. You could move from one part, uh, one part of the curve to the other. So yeah. while you might have maturities taking place and now the traditional ladders telling us to reinvest in the 10-year part of the curve, we can shift this and now create 20-year bucket, right? So it's not equally weighted. We don't have to force it, but let's do it over time.
1: So okay. again,
2: that's, that's a customization that we allow to say, look, let's now reinvest your proceeds into the 20-year part of the curve and slowly start building that out. That's been huge, right? For clients to then be able to toggle and, and using our guidance on how best to then reinvest in that ladder going forward. Um, the second thing I'll say is, I think when you talk about buying, when you talk about implementation, and, and I would say again, the one knock sometimes on SMAs um, can be that you are, you know, you're, you're having to, you, you can take too long to invest, right? I know you're mentioning you, you could be price, you're implying like, look, you're just having to go out into the market and buy what you can or buy whatever you can at that time, um, but in the SMA world we can actually use patience we can use time to invest as we see fit right it's not like etf exposure that you have to buy bonds right away i mean typically you know as we've and we'll talk to this i'm sure about technology leveraging that gaining speed of investment but you could in theory take 30 days to invest a in portfolio and and that's could be the right way to do it so as managers we pull those levers um in these separately managed portfolios which i would argue can be a lot more beneficial in certain environments than non-SMA vehicles.
1: Well, what kind of levers are you pulling specifically if you can share?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, look, it could be speeding up or slowing down the buying right based upon the market. Right. right. So, so if you see an incredible amount of opportunity and you're saying, look, this is, again, we're seeing these bid lists. We're seeing a lot of new issue deals. Maybe it's an eight to $10 billion new issue deal week. Let's, let's, get into the market and, and buy a lot, let's say this week. But on the flip side, if ratios are rich, you know, we're feeling like, look, it's a Fed week, we have low issuance, we're maybe not seeing a lot of opportunity. There's nothing forcing us to having to buy these bonds at these richer values or richer ratios, right? We can pull those levers to say, let's take a little bit more opportunity to do that. The other thing I'll also say is sometimes the knock can be, um SMA portfolios, you know, again, we're accessing new issue deals. Um, Are you going out and buying just these small pieces for individual clients? But as you know, scaling the SMA business requires a lot of technology
1: um,
2: and requires the ability to aggregate the needs. So, you know, you may need 50 bonds. Someone else may need 25. Aggregating that across the board is such a huge way for clients, smaller clients, to take advantage of that pricing power. Um, and for us to be able to leverage that um, on their behalf.
1: All right, so I have two questions. One is just related to what we were just talking about, and it's more specifically, because so I was hoping you would sort of lead us there. In the front of the curve specifically, where relative value for me has, has been like really tough. Are you guys able to sort of implement any other sort of strategies to, you know, sort of help clients get invested, or, you know, actually be better on a tax-advantaged basis, you know, buying mm-hmm. corporates, buying treasuries, anything like that?
2: Yes, we can. So we have uh, two, two, let's say, strategies that can do that. So in our actively managed strategies, we have the ability to cross over into treasuries. And, and this has sure. been actually the original strategy that our team back from the MDSAS days in the early 90s had. This was the only strategy we had. Mm-hmm. High quality strategy. We can cross over into treasuries if ratios ever get rich. And in fact, in those strategies, we still have about a 15 percent allocation to treasuries. Given, given the re- richness in, in that sure. part of the curve. Um, and, and that's been phenomenal. That's something that, again, for those clients that are looking for that active management that are focused on total return, uh, that's a strategy that they love. Because then the end client or the advisor isn't having to say, munis are rich. I need to sell out of munis and, and buy right treasuries, or I need to move it from this lead to this lead. Uh, the second thing that we newly were able to create, and again, it's been due to a lot of technology, proprietary tools that we built out, is creating tax-optimized portfolios across taxable and tax-exempt solutions based upon a client's tax bracket. So, right, we also realize in a lot of our conversations that clients will always stay in the highest tax bracket. That can change over time. Or, to your point, the market environment can change. Maybe there's a dislocation where treasuries might make more sense.
1: Yeah. But
2: based upon Eric, your right bracket, your state, your federal, let's optimize between investment grade corporates, treasuries, and munis and buy the best asset class in whichever yeah. maturity range that you pick. And and, and that this, I think is the future. And this uh, is
1: in like, yeah. the laddered strategies?
2: That's in the ladder strategy. That's correct. I mean,
1: it's- Seems like everyone needs to redo their their criticizing and rethinking of ladders. I mean, this right,
2: seems right. Today. I mean, yeah. do they have tax-optimized portfolios?
1: I don't know. I, I, new, new ladder hotness. I like it. So yes. the secondary question I have um, is jotted down here. So you know, what we've heard from some of the ETF providers, um, you know, some of the larger complexes is that SMAs are now using it as almost like a placeholder when they initially get a dump of money just to get some exempt income coming in. And then they'll sort of peel off like you know, obviously like cash from the ETF shares to buy opportunistically. Are you utilizing ETFs in any of the strategies that you're managing now?
2: Well, we are not. So right now we don't have the ability, even just from a guidelines perspective, to be able to buy ETFs in a separately managed portfolios.
1: Okay. Um,
2: something that we are doing, and I would say it's twofold, no doubt there's been a higher importance and focus on getting invested and I would say that speed of investment being faster, right? And a lot of this just has to do with the overnight sweet funds, uh, the lack of yield that's that's there. So there's a lot more sensitivity, understandably, around cash sitting in accounts. So let's not take 30 days, right, to to get invested. Um, The great thing also is that the market's kind of, you know, it's been providing us a, a lot of opportunity, again, leveraging new issue and secondary to allow us to get invested faster. Um, But to answer your question, we don't leverage ETFs. Something that we do leverage is T-bills. And it's as simple as buying T-bills, right, to the extent that there's specific state portfolios. So as you know, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, uh, California, issuance is down pretty significantly year over year. So in some of those states where we might think it's going to take a little bit longer to get invested, we might actively look to buy T-bills on a case-by-case basis. But You know, in general, again, with the technology that we've implemented, you know, daily, let's just say volume of buying can be anywhere from 100, 150 million Mm -hmm. uh, across three to 5,000 tickets. Uh, We've drastically improved that speed of investment, um, which has been a really great experience for our clients.
0: What is the minimum size on SMA accounts? I believe it's 100,000. Do you ever see account sizes going lower than this?
1: I think Karen's trying to become a client. Either. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. She's like, "How do
2: I get invested?"
0: in yeah.
1: Yes,
0: yes. Um, so,
2: I, I think look, there, the evolution certainly, and as you're seeing fractional shares on the equity side, right, and the minimums continuously going down, there certainly could be an evolution to lower lower minimums. Um, I would say the industry uh, norm for minimums is probably in the 150 to 250 thousand. Um, across our strategies, actively managed or laddered, uh, the lowest we typically go down to is, yes, 100,000. Anything below that, I think, especially in munis, gets a little wonky when you try to ladder, right? And let's just keep it simply the laddering. I mean, you start losing a lot of liquidity once you start having to buy five bond pieces. And, and though in theory, you're going to hold it to maturity, let's be honest, we know that a not a lot, not all clients treat, their need portfolios and sleeves that way, right? Sometimes they need liquidity on it. Sometimes they need to reallocate it to another asset class. Um, you start yeah. sacrificing a lot of liquidity for it by having to buy the suboptimal sizes when you start getting below that hundred thousand minimum. So, you know, think about creating a one to 15 year ladder with a hundred thousand uh, you're going to start. You can't even create a properly structured ladder um, yeah. at some point there.
1: Well, so you mentioned odd lot sizes, and now I just want to sort of interject with the question that we got from a client who found out you were going to be on the podcast. So the question is, quote unquote, parametric is best in class at sourcing liquidity in odd lot sizes, you know, which make up 96% of trades in the market, but which many old school fund participants didn't interact with, preferring block sizes. Um, they want to hear your view on the benefits of that, you know, that this provides you, sort of like being able to traffic. And sort of block up things from smaller pieces?
2: Yes. So, you know, I would say if you take a look at the daily offerings, and, and when I say offerings, the odd lot offerings that we get from the street, the bid list, there's probably 60 to 80,000 different offerings, right? Yeah. And a majority of them are actually smaller pieces. You know, outside of times where you have the SBB list, you have larger pieces, you have these smaller odd lots. And what we have built out is the ability to take advantage and bid thousands and thousands of those odd lots every single day. Now, again, you know, to, to, this, uh, to the question and the origination is that I think for a long time, there's been a misconception. And yes, there is a markup associated, traditionally speaking, if you buy an odd lot right, relative to a larger size. But think about times when you see a lot of selling in the market or you have constant repricing of those odd lots that's on balance sheets. We've created, let's say, a bot that is bidding thousands of these every single day. And it does it by analyzing data in the MSRB market, uh, kind of all the trades that have taken place for that type of structure. It takes the data of where we have bought certain bonds and it's just throwing bids on all these items every single day. So you have the opportunity to buy these odd lots and, you know, Calgeo odd lot, maybe, you know, you can buy it at plus 35, whereas a block might've been plus 15, plus 20. And that's something that you can, uh, uh, that we can leverage uh, in our portfolios. I mean, last year, our volume consisted of probably about 500 to 600,000 individual trades uh, which, you know, is just absolutely incredible uh, when you look at the daily volume that we've been able to achieve. And again, a lot of it having to do with the odd lot trading, the secondary market. And that's huge, especially in years like this, where new issue supply, right, is down year over year, 20 to 30 percent. How else can managers leverage and get kind of the most attractive prices out there in the market?
1: Are you feeling the pinch from new issue allocation? I mean, we have a hear from a lot of people crying in their soup constantly that they, you know, they put in for a hundred billion bonds and they got five. Um, you know, but I, I have to imagine it's impacting everyone, like you said, supply yeah. off that much. It,
2: exactly. Uh, yes, you can't deny it, right? I, I, it's it's impacting us. Uh, you can't. Do we wish there was higher supply? Yes, we do, right? At a time where we're seeing inflows, at, at a time where we're seeing or allocation of fixed income. Um, But again, it's leveraging other aspects of the market that we've been able to kind of implement in our portfolios at a time where supply and new issue supply isn't necessarily there,
0: but yeah. Um, You mentioned bots earlier, and I think that was a good segue for us for our next question. Obviously the largest stories of late impacting not just tech, but all related spaces Is the rise in ai and natural language processing i know here internally in bloomberg it's something we talk a lot about of to what extent are you leveraging either of these approaches
2: yeah so uh there's no denying that ai and the infrastructure uh of that has has already changed the game for many industries and i think it's only the beginning um in the asset management business so we're in the exploration phase of trying to imply and test out this infrastructure within our business. So it can be as you know simple as, you know. again, I talked about the bot, I talked about trading, using it to look at, again, all historical tra- trade data, using it to apply it to trade structures and getting information in an analysis, right, in a fraction of the time and then arming Traders and PMs to then make the execution decisions. So, that is something that I think, you know, again, this AI uh, innovation, the AI open infrastructure is going to help us personally do a lot more of this. We're already doing this with internal tools. This will just make it faster. This will make it just even more efficient, taking more data. Uh, the other thing I would say is. You know, credit analysis and simple as something like credit analysis. Right. Right now, analysts are pulling up financials, Uh, the ability to feed in financials, the ability to feed in third party sources, news, um, local news outlets, uh, other mentions of the issue or scanning everything out there in the market with keywords, with the issuer name, with themes can help our analysts. Right. Come up with kind of that qualitative aspect of credit research that is just going to be so much faster uh, and and be an absolute game changer. And then the last thing we've been using some form of this internally is for our ESG strategies. So uh, we partner with Calvert, um, which is one of our our colleagues um, and and was part of the advance. and, And now we've all been acquired by Morgan Stanley. We've implemented ESG strategies, so we use this to look up the use of proceeds in the OS statements, um, which is just absolutely um, incredible and and incredibly quick to do, right? Instead of pouring off uh, of all these OS statements, which, you know, I'm sure if you've ever seen one, it can be uh, particularly long. uh, I used to do this by hand. I used to pull these by hand and go back to three
1: refundings to find out the original use of sources. Yes. Yes.
2: Yes. And then, you know, lastly, I would just say one application that we've been looking at very closely is, as we built out tools to implement ongoing tax loss harvesting, right? This is the whole concept that year round, continuously analyze ways that you can sell a bond and buy another bond with similar characteristics. So there's no cash drag, you're not changing the parameters of the portfolio, but you're creating tax alpha along the way. And last year, we were able to realize about half a billion dollars of losses, create about 90 basis points of tax alpha, which is absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: now, let's hope not every year is like that, but using an AI type of infrastructure with our internal tools to be able to leverage, right, kind of those those possible purchases to be able to, to identify those swaps a lot quicker and, and faster.
0: Um, We'd like to know, and I know you talked a little bit about ESG, um, but we still would like to know a little bit more in terms of how big of a focus is ESG for parametric? Are you still getting a lot of requests from from clients of making ESG a big part of their portfolios?
1: Yeah, like are you going to have like ladder strategies devoted to this or strategies?
0: So it's both. So it's
2: a it's a form of customization and our uh, credit team partner with Calvert, one of the leaders in the responsible investing space to come up with Calvert uh, SMA strategy. So you can overlay it into ladders. You can overlay it into actively managed strategies. Uh, we can offer in states like New York and California. And we have certainly have seen growth. Right. I mean, we've seen growth so far this year. And it's been a function of getting the story out there. It's if Look, it's not meant for all clients, but for the clients that are looking to align this type of investing across all of their sleeves, they can do this now in municipal bond portfolios too. And I'm sure, you know, I think there are clients that have the mindset that counter, you know, intuitively muni, muni bonds in a way are self ESG in and of itself, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the core of what <clears you> they <throat> do. Yes. um right building up school districts building up the roads building out highways but now we can overlay this by specifically targeting right a percentage of the portfolio that is going to provide and exceed kind of that environmental benefit or from a social impact perspective and then you can not buy certain sectors that might have a negative impact so to answer your question it's definitely a sector that we've been seeing a lot of growth on it's been a big focus item for us um, and I think it's, it's been a, I think we're only going to see more and more growth um, over the coming years, uh, as you see more of a shift uh, towards ESG investing. And then lastly, I'll just say there's also different tiers of ESG investing, right? I mean, you can have clients that want to be a little bit more climate focused, um, and that's in and it of itself is always going to be integrated into the credit research process. But then you may have those clients that specifically want just certain sectors that want maybe just certain types of housing bounds or certain type of school districts and those are all portfolios that we can create and again that kind of is all a part of the customization that we can offer.
1: do you think this is just like a race to richness though like if you think this is a growth area and you know most of the new uh, you know products that we soon come out have been focused on let's call it ESG or sustainability type uh, approaches. Everybody's fighting for the same pot that's getting smaller of issuance.
0: Yeah.
1: And and we're actually seeing on the secondary that, you know, these sort of like greenium that's being paid is, is definitely there that, you know, those bonds are richer than just, I guess, like non-green bonds. So it's like, how do you combat that?
2: Yeah. And, and that's been a recent phenomenon, I would say. And I think a lot of it just has been a result of the lower issuance because up until, you know, this year, I would say there was very, little or marginal difference in yield. If you had a state or an issuer come out with a green, let's say green bond deal versus a non green deal. Um, so I, I do think that a lot of it has to just do with the supply din- dynamics of it. Um, it look, I, I think you can't fight the trend in terms of the shift of where investor, let's say importance in, in customizing and creating customized solutions is. Um, so it's something that, you know, we feel, and and again, surprisingly, that in muni bond portfolios, right, again, the ESG investing concept, um, we were also surprised at kind of the demand for it. Uh, now, do I think this is going to be something that's going to overtake, right, the, the market, the industry, yeah. and we're going to see a lot more ESG portfolios than non? I don't think so. Um, but it's just another form of customization that we can offer to our clients. And look, to your point, yeah. It's also making clients aware that in certain environments for certain states, you might be giving up a little bit of yield,
0: mm-hmm. but
2: for the type of, let's say, assurance that these clients have, knowing that, okay, this portfolio is created with these principles that are very important to me, that's that's all that matters.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like flying in your private jet knowing your unique portfolio is <laughs> <Yes>. 100% sustainable.
2: <laughs> yes. They're trying to Uh, counteract it somehow,
1: Eric. I understand that. I understand. (laughs) Um, All right. So just speaking more broadly, and I know we're running short on time here. We just have like one or two more questions. What do you think the main factors are that differentiate parametric from your competitors? And what's led to success for you guys?
2: Yeah, I I would say it's been... Two of the biggest things, and I know I keep you know kind of saying technology, but it's more around the technology that's allowed us to create the customized solutions, right? So the ability to say there's no one solution that's gonna fit all, right? The investing aspect of it and and we found, especially the Muni sleeve, right? It becomes a very personal conversation because yeah. this is their sleep safe money. And again, Muni's investment group corporates. um but with that view, every client is gonna be different. So allow for the solutions to be different to fit each one of those clients. And so the biggest differentiator that we have is that we have a lot of different solutions with so many different parameters of customization that I think really um, sets us apart from many others in, in the firm, right? I mean, look, there are a lot of managers that focus on actually managed strategies only, and they do it very yeah. well. Um, as we touched upon earlier, we do that too, but we do a lot of ladders and we do that very well as well. So, you know, creating solutions for I think all sets of of investors is really important. And then using technology to continuously innovate. So the tax optimized solution, right? Making ladders hot all of a sudden, you know, to your point, this is something that's never been done on an individual basis, right? There are there are managers that say, okay, you're in a high tax bracket, you're in a low tax bracket. We're going to buy this much taxables and the breast tax exempt, but has anybody done it at an individual client basis? And so with us being able to do that, that to us is just the next evolution of the customized and tax optimized portfolio um, and and continuously kind of leveraging that. And then the second thing, and, and this has been, you know, as PMs and as portfolio managers, I think we're a little unique in our group that. We travel often with our sales teams. We travel often to see the end clients and advisors. We're out there on the road and we know what's working. We know what's not working that helps us develop these new products. But we also take a very consultative approach. So a lot of these advisors that are not wanting to now create individual mini portfolios, right? They want to work with a manager that's doing it very well. But they're viewing them as an extension of themselves, and that's where we position ourselves, right? We're a partner to those teams, we're a partners to those clients um and providing that thought forward uh thought leadership that recommendation based upon each of those individual client needs. so you know I'll be honest, you know I think we talk about technology a lot, a big aspect of our business is is servicing and mm-hmm. and you know how do you how do you create more humans? you can't create that with mm-hmm. no matter how much how many how much AI and technology you use. But it's figuring out ways to at least leverage it um, to allow us to provide the same type of consultative approach and then doing that at scale um, as, as we continue to
1: grow. Well, I have to say it's impressive that you're actually saying you're going out with sales I mean, because like the world, much of our world has shifted in the fact that you have all these CPM positions, right? Where yeah. they're sort of serving as that frontline interface. So you could stay at the home office and manage portfolios and they're basically like your liaison with sales. So to hear you going out there is like pretty impressive. I mean, so I'm sure clients definitely appreciate that sort of, you know, soft touch approach.
2: Exactly. So this is something, again, it started from our MD SAS days to where we were wearing a lot of those different hats when we didn't have a sales team.
0: Yeah.
1: And
2: so when we were acquired by Eaton Vance, we had access to the sales team, but it was still something we wanted to be very involved in. Um, and again, at the end of the day, yeah. it, it allows us to create the most effective solutions the most effective materials. And, for us to then be able to teach sales, how to tell the story. So we've become, you know, really great friends with a lot of these folks. Uh, I'm out out there on the road, often seeing a lot of these teams existing prospective clients. Uh, And to your point, it's great, right? Because I can say, uh, and I am, that my team is managing these portfolios, right? And and we are doing what we're saying we're doing. Um, and, And that approach again, is is something that's just very unique that we're able to provide um here and, and and we're constantly figuring out ways to uh not clone humans, but you know, add humans and, and be able heard. to scale that. Yes.
0: Yes. Okay, we want to wrap this up with one last question. And it's a question we often ask our guests and that's what keeps you up at night? That,
2: that in terms is, of munis. Yes, in terms <laughs> in terms of munis. Yeah. Uh yes. I was gonna say, where do I begin? Uh, yeah, because mine start, would be
1: my dog. Do my children. My children. Okay, yeah, yeah exactly. my
2: children. Um <laughs> it's usually my son. Uh no. So I what keeps me up at night. Um you know, I, I would say I, I feel very good about how we are investing our clients' money, but I do think that longer term, when it comes to munis, we haven't seen maybe the worst in terms of the pension liabilities and ramifications yet. Mm-hmm. And again, there's less focus on it now. And look, we've talked about it. Credit fundamentals are solid. We're talking about upgrades for some of these states.
0: Yeah.
2: But what about when the time runs out? What about when they haven't done enough? And we know, you know, look, there's a lot of estimates on on how far the can's been kicked down the road. Um, but from that 2026 onward period where some of these pension funds are expected to start to run dry or run very low based upon, obviously, the aging population, the retirement. Right. Look, just looking at demographics, that's something. That worries me. And just the, the widespread ramifications of what that means, right? What, what does state do? What does states do? They can't pay this out. Um, and look, you can issue debt. How much can you continue to issue, right? If, if the market starts knowing why you're issuing debt uh, legally, you still have to pay out those liabilities. So I think that is one structural aspect that, um, you know, I think keeps me up at night just in terms of, you know, how is this going to play out in the future? And, and what is this going to mean? Uh, is it going to completely alter the market, bifurcate uh, the market? And look, you can say it is in some ways. Um, but that's something that I wouldn't even call a black swan event. It's just something if you look at some numbers now, and if it keeps trending the way it is, it's going to happen at some point. But mm-hmm. what happens at that point?
1: Yeah. I mean, munis seem pretty invaluable at this point in the credit cycle. I mean, there was a story out of Vegas about, you know, people seeing aliens and it was like, with munis luck, they'll need tax exempt income. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like anything can knock us off. And
2: look, tax rates are not going down meaningfully anytime soon. Right. I mean, look, tax regimes can change, but let's just look at the amount of debt that we have. And, you know, no matter what political party you have, sure, you might have a few percentage drop here or there, a few percentage, you know, maybe increase, but it's not meaningfully going to go down. So this is gonna this is gonna be an asset class that's gonna have a lot of focus in high tax bracket client portfolios that's perceived to be uh, high quality, just perceived to be safe. And I'm not saying it's not, but again, at that point in time, right, that that's something that um, I'm not sure anybody has answers to, but I think that will significantly kind of alter the market.
1: Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much, Nisha Patel from yeah. Parametric.
2: It was great speaking with you. Yeah, it was great speaking much to you too. Us. This was great. Thank you for All having right. me on.
1: Yeah, join us next month when we're joined by an active manager who tells us why they hate ladders. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. Don't do that to me. Eric. Yeah, no, I would not. All
1: right, thank you so much for All doing right. Take All care. Right. All right, bye-bye.
0: Bye. Bye.